Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and with me, of course, is Dr. Chris Garneau. Dr. Garneau, <laughs> Trump, okay, we got to talk about that right off the bat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so this week, I think my greatest source of entertainment, and it, it shouldn't be funny, but it kind of is. <laughs> Trump was giving a speech about the the grand well he said grandeur but the grandeur and the splendor of our natural uh our, our national parks and our our national natural habitats and it was supposed to be a speech talking about you know how much we value these american landmarks and how we should you know preserve them so anyway um he's reading he's reading off the script and he gets to a word and you can tell he's never read this word before um and this is this is a, a secret like those who have been Close to the president, who are no longer in the administration anymore, said that he's not really a reader, so it's possible he never actually did come across this word before. It's probably, you know, not something that would have been as interesting to him, but uh, it was Yosemite. And so Yosemite is Y-O-S-E-M-I-T-E. And he gets, you can see on his face, he like kind of takes a pause and looks at the word and he goes, Yosemite, Yosemite, Yosemite. And he just like, it just like moves on. <laughs> okay. And there were a few others in there <laughs> that ended up being kind of Freudian. Um, but the point is he, he, he had some, some problems. So presidential gaffes were pretty big this week. Um, and I, I thought that one was, it was funny and he, you know, he didn't take a real serious tone about it, but it was supposed to be the serious somber kind of speech. And, you know, it, my thought about it is, the rest of the world does watch this stuff. So it's not that it's inconsequential. You know, when I just want, want you to think about this, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, not only is he dashingly good looking, he is like movie star good looking. He's also he can he can explain astrophysics and speaks multiple languages. Right. Um, Macron in France, he's, like you know, about the same. And then so it, it, it is what I'm saying, Kelly, is there is a stark uh, uh, juxtaposition when it comes to world leadership. Yeah, let's let Trump explain binary numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so, here's the thing, too. Did you, I mean, I know you're not a reader in all this, but you never watched Yosemite Sam? <laughs> <laughs> Yosemite Sam. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, but seriously, I mean, those cartoons like were coming out like right when he was a youngster, right? I mean, oh my gosh. Didn't rich I white couldn't... kids watch Bugs Bunny? I mean, surely they did. <laughs> I, 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 I was befuddled by that. So there, that was, uh, that was Trump, but, uh, you know, Biden had his own issues. Uh -huh. Um, so had a little bit of a gaff and, you know, we've mentioned a few times on our program already that one of the things that's really been able to save Joe Biden, because he is kind of known as a gaff machine, is that because of social distancing, he hasn't been holding rallies. And because of that, he hasn't really had an opportunity to speak to large crowds and get the camera on him. And so the gaffs just haven't been all that numerous. But he did get caught saying, you know, he was trying to talk about ethnicity and ended up saying something along the lines of, um, African Americans aren't nearly as diverse as, as Latinos, and you know, it, with it notable was, uh, exception. Yes, yes, that's what he said. Yeah. With notable exception, 
Well, Notable- which, which black folks do you which- think are more exceptional than others, Vice President? Who are you talking about? Yeah, and, and, and this, this kind of gets back to this idea, that, and, and one of the reasons why, and we already have a good idea of who his VP pick is going to be. All of the insiders are saying it's going to be Harris, but mm. um, having a woman of color is going to be really important, I think, for him at this stage, just because he doesn't, uh, coming from the era that he comes from, I don't think he has the, shall we say, eloquence um, of being able to to talk about race and ethnicity. And, and by the way, Trump doesn't either, but Trump doesn't even try to you know, hi. I mean, he's just like, whatever, you know, he doesn't really care. Or is it at a rally several years ago, he goes, there's my African-American, right. And points to like the, the one black guy in the crowd. <laughs> so, you know, for Trump, I mean, he didn't, didn't even care. Um, for, for Biden though, it, it, you know, he's, he is trying to unify this interesting base and he kind of has some inroads to Trump numbers and the white working class. And there's a lot of white working class individuals who voted for Obama, switched to Trump, and now have a, a viable path to, to, to moving back to Biden. I mean, that, that seems to be what might be happening in polls in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and places where Biden does fairly well. Um, but that's not the only coalition he needs. He does need minority voters to come out in really large numbers because that is the Democratic base. And it's becoming more and more the Democratic base, which kind of brings to light, you know, what is it like to have you know, an, an older white guy up there that doesn't have a lot of experience with diversity. And, and I think this is kind of one of those issues that we see is that he doesn't have that vocabulary. And I think what he was trying to talk about was the, the, the large differences within, you know, what we consider to be a Latino community, although it's not really a full, like a, a community in the way that we would talk about other ethnic groups. Puerto Ricans um, are extremely different from Cuban Americans, and they're extremely different from Mexican Americans. And, you know, there are different histories there. Um, there are different cultural heritages. And uh, as a sociologist, I can speak on it a little bit better, uh, even though I'm pretty white. Uh, I know enough about that. Uh, but the thing about it is, too, even within the African American community, I think uh, one of the things that he could have expanded on, there's, you know, Afro-Caribbean um, and then within the different regions of the United States, there's all kinds of diversity. There's diversity based off of class. And we see, you know, the same thing with American Indians and with um, Asian Americans. Um, it's, you know, when you're talking to a broad coalition of people, yeah, you can break it down into groups. And we tend to do that socially. But at the same time, it's, you know, kind of important to not treat any group like a monolith. And it's, you know, basically saying it, it, you can't broad brush and paint one group exactly the same way. And I think he was trying to elaborate on something like that. It, he just didn't quite have the words for it. And so, you know, I, this is going to be an ongoing thing where he's going to say some stuff. People are going to bring up what he said. He's going to have to walk it back. And But the, the, the larger point is he already has the African-American base pretty much locked down. They're not going to be moving to Trump, not this year or any in any time soon. Not over that. Uh, no, not over that. But it's it's the enthusiasm, right? It's that's what they're really looking at, and that's why Biden has tried to uh, invoke the, the the name Obama whenever he possibly can to remind folks that Obama had enough trust in him to pick him as his VP, and, and he, he's going to get some mileage out of that. But he's in some ways maybe just needs to kind of hush up about uh, about race when he's on the campaign trail well and you know what that's that's the best point right there because as soon as i heard that and i mean i of course i went oh 
But then in the next instant, I was like, well, he's an old white dude from Delaware. What does he really yeah. know about cultural sensitivity? Right. No, it's, it's, it's true. And it's, and I think people are, once he gets his VP pick and I think that, that it's going to help him quite a bit. I would not be surprised Kelly to see his VP pick um, overtake him in terms of airtime leading up to what will likely be virtual. Well, it will be virtual conferences and almost definitely going to be virtual debates. And, and that's an important part to talk about too. Biden is it, everything is going in his favor. Another thing that's going in his favor is he doesn't have to speak at a convention. Um, he doesn't have to get up in front of the thousands of people that's going to be televised. And it is going to be televised, but it's going to be a much more controlled kind of format. Trump wanted to have uh, you know, his convention in North Carolina, and then that wasn't going to work out, wanted to move it to Florida. And the Republican convention has now officially been put on uh, online. So it's essentially going to be a televised, you know, Zoom convention. So I think this is going to be fascinating. I think it, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to be ageist in this, but let's just be honest, Biden and Trump in a debate over Zoom. I mean, I've been on enough Zoom meetings to know how <laughs> complicated that can get. Someone's going to have to remember to mute and unmute those guys because they're not board ops. Y'all need board ops. <laughs> yeah. I hope it's Susan Rice. I really hope it's Susan Rice. And that's the other name that's been thrown out too. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, tell me what you're enthused about, about Susan Rice. I like Susan Rice. Um, well, and both women have a law enforcement background um, and both have served a pretty high ranking uh, places. Um Susan Rice has never run for office, although she's worked uh, on political campaigns. Um, I -hmm. like her that she's already um, really knowledgeable in foreign policy. I like that she already knows a lot of the players uh, internationally. I think that that's going to be a really important component in the next administration, um, in a Biden administration, to start... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, calming the waters. And I think Susan Rice, um, I, I think that I just like her disposition a little bit better than I like Kamala Harris and Kamala Harris wouldn't be a bad pick. You know, I mean, at this point I'm grudgingly supporting Biden. I've, I've accepted it with, you know, a lot of Irish whiskey. <laughs> it softened the blow. <laughs> But, right, right, right. but, you know, but, uh, but that's what, I, that's what I like. And I think that too, she's a very calming presence and she doesn't have the animosity with the residents in California that Kamala Harris has when she right. was the uh, attorney general. Well, and, and, and that really struck a nerve for a lot of folks. And, and Harris had a few good moments in the democratic primary debates and then kind of shrunk away. And, and part of that was her record, I think. And that, and she didn't really, she was in the middle of a lane that was kind of crowded anyway. And she was sort of trying to tiptoe that middle lane and still seem progressive, but, but up against Biden looking, you know, I, I think honestly, Harris or Rice, you know, put up against Biden will maybe give a little bit more of appeal to uh, a left-leaning voter base. But, and I think it, 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 it's going to come down to this. It's the other tangentials, the things that we can't 
you know, specifically say are issue based or agenda based. And that has to do with the fact that the executive office has so much power when it comes to doing things like nominating judges. And in this last week, um, we saw Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized again, I think about a week ago or so. And of course, every and she's been in the hospital maybe four or five times this year. It's been a rough year for her. Um, a friend of mine and I were, you know, halfway joking that she's she's sticking with this job out of spite at this point. Mm-hmm. Like she's going to wait out Trump. You know, it, she probably wants to retire. She probably wants to, you know, she is getting older and she's sharp, but, and, you know, she's not losing any steps. But I think she's really kind of been hanging on. I don't mean the light, but hanging on to her spot because she knows the gravity of what that would do to the court. John Roberts has strangely enough acted as the swing vote after Kennedy left um, when they, you know, when they when they brought in Kavanaugh. Um, that's not going to be the case if if Bader Ginsburg, uh, if if she were to pass away um, or for medical leave had to had to step down, Trump would waste no time in nominating someone that McConnell um, would gladly have the Republican Senate vote on. So. Um, I'm glad to say she's back at work, heard she's doing real well, and she's, she's got to make it to, to, to January. So we're we're all pulling, <laughs> at least I am, I'm pulling for crossing my fingers. But that's the thing. If you're uh, if you're kind of on the fence, if you're a progressive and you're thinking, well, is Biden someone that would appeal to me? Maybe he doesn't in a lot of ways. But, you know, the Supreme Court is such an, that's one third of the federal government in terms of checks and balances. And there is such a delicate balance that happened that's happening right now with the court. It, it's impossible to say that, well, there's really no difference between Trump and Biden just on that one aspect alone, um, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg will likely not be in the Supreme Court in another four years. That's true. And I think that she's hanging on to and, and, and you know what, and I'm not particularly a, a religious person, but every day I pray to the creator for Ruth Bader Ginsburg every <laughs> single day. Like, please, Lord, I know she's probably tired, but please let her make it through at least February, please, <laughs> just please, yeah. at least then, <laughs> then she can retire and go relax and enjoy everything. I wanted to switch gears a little bit too, since we're talking about campaigning and things like that. And the NRA being broke and Mm. the New York attorney general going after Wayne LaPierre and uh, a couple of other of their uh, top guys. And I picked up on that story. Yeah. Okay. So back in 2016, um, they spent something like $36 million uh, on the Trump campaign supporting it. And, you know, these other, you know, NRA candidates and whatnot. Well, the next year they were $38 million in the hole. And so over the last couple of years, they're like 64 mil in the hole. Just over the last couple of years. And And there's really no, and from what I read, like there's, there's no immediate way, no immediate way for them to become solvent. And it, it comes around to this issue of what is the NRA? And we could even expand it and say, what are special interest groups in general with relation to campaigns? Because what the NRA started as honestly was like a hunting club, like back in the, you know, the early days. Um, a lot of people just wanted to be part of the NRA because they liked to go hunting. It was, a, you know, it was a kind of a, a almost like a sports club or organization, if you want to think about it. And the NRA has really taken off in the past 20 years 
as more of a political finance machine for conservative and uh, in, in, in Republican candidates. It, it never started that way. It, so now, now that, you've got. Do you think that, that that's got to be part of the, uh, you know, Citizens United and being able to, you know, funnel money from these different Citizen, nonprofit organizations? Citizens United allowed the NRA, it, well, it, and corporations. Um, for those who are, you know, don't remember, basically it was the Supreme Court came down on the side of, uh, well, money is speech and free speech is protected. Therefore, you know, if corporations or organizations, whoever it happens to be, wants to spend money on their speech, it's protected under the Constitution. It was a very, very strange, of course, five-four split decision. Um, but what it allowed was for campaign finance to really go wild, and individuals who have undue influence, you know, by way of having a lot of money, and organizations that have a lot of money, to invest heavily into campaigns. And what we've seen since Citizens United. Um, is that each and every year, uh, you know, whether we're talking about presidential or other elections, the amount of money that candidates are raising in the millions has just skyrocketed. I mean, it is absolutely astounding how much money that they raise. And one of the stories behind the NRA story or the, the bylines there was that it, it really has just become a funding machine. It's no longer about, you know, talking to gun owners about, well, you know, these are the, the issues that are concerning us. I mean, they do a little bit of that, but more than anything, they are, or they become an organization that puts their, their foot on the, you know, on the neck of, of, of politicians saying, look, you, you go with what we want, or, you know, you risk losing funding. When we saw the Parkland shooting, um, a few years back, that was a big deal. You know, they came out right away and they said, you better toe the line. Um, Marco Rubio uh, was in, in serious crosshairs of the NRA, no pun intended, but basically, you know, you better toe the party line. And he was a Florida senator. It happened in his state. And you could see he, he, he was tense. He had a lot of um, conflicting issues with his constituents wanting more gun control. And then on the other side, this organization that funds not only him, but the people that he works with saying, look, you got to say what we want you to say. And so that's that to me is anti-democratic. I think Citizens United was anti-democratic. But one of the issues that's going on at the NRA, too, is this doesn't equate to freedom of political expression. It's really just like it, it's political coercion because there's so much money behind that group. Well, and okay, but not anymore. So how, okay, so there's two things that I want to ask you about this. Number one, how is this going to affect the political landscape with the NRA not being able to back as many candidates as they, as they have been in the last, uh, you know, since 2016, maybe 2014? Um, because it, it, actually since kind of 2012, it's just been progressive, progressive, progressive more. And, right. you know, and they've just kind of bankrupted themselves. But the second part of that is for the candidates that have these NRA A-plus ratings and stuff like that, I mean, is that going to work for or against their credibility? Or, does, or, okay. or is it just their um, proximity to Trump that's going to make that difference? Well, there's a, it's a good question because you've got – like the, the, the two issues to go along with the, that two-part question is, is the NRA a symbolic boost to candidates 
or are they a monetary boost? And and the symbolism is real. Having an A plus rating from the NRA that actually does mean something to uh, voters when you put it on a TV ad. But the point is, you can't get the TV ad on the air without money. I think for the most part, the NRA, if it's if it can stick around and if it can continue to give you know, A through F ratings, then, you know, candidates are still going to be coming back to that. But if they can't give up money the way that they used to, I think we're going to see Republican candidates or, you know, Republican legislators in purple to blue districts being a little more willing to move towards sensible gun restriction, sensible gun regulation. And this is the misnomer. And I think this is going to take a lot of power away from the bite of the NRA's message. And the message has been liberals, progressives, Democrats want to take your guns away. And the reality is there have been very few, very, if any, in the last 20 years, serious candidates for you know, major, major positions in government um, who have actively said, we're going to take your guns away. Barack Obama didn't take anyone's guns away. Uh, now, gun sales went up would. like. Right. And and gun sales went up like crazy when he got elected the first and even the second time, because, you know, that's that's the line that was given. And so I don't you know, I don't know if that's going to be valid anymore, because, you know, here, here's what we know about gun ownership. It's actually a small minority of Americans that have guns. The vast majority of Americans do not own a gun. The The minority that do own guns tend to own multiple guns. And that's why we have, you know, the statistics that we see of is, there's basically a gun for every man, woman and child living in the United States. That's not going to, I don't see that going away. It's too far into our DNA. And there are people who, you know, just very fervently, you know, want to keep that right going. And, and by the way, most of the people that are, that own a gun have it like for a just in case thing, a protection thing, or more likely just have it for sport or because, you know, here, here's another, they just like guns. They just, you know, they like to work on them. They like to go target practice, whatever. Um, all of the Democrats that I've, you know, really had contact with, from what I can tell, have never really been on the side of we want to take your gun away. They just want to have some kind of restriction. Um, if you have a history of domestic violence, can't get a gun. Um, if you've been shown to be very unstable and have violent tendencies, can't get a gun. Um, have a violent, uh, violent offense using a gun, can't get a gun. It's it's really hard to argue against those very basic principles that look if you know most of americans have the ability to get a firearm if they want one the nra has been able to take that message and twist it to the democrats want to take your guns away and people get so weirded out about that so i don't know i i, I think in places it's not going to matter in oklahoma nearly as much but in my home state of montana which is kind of like leaning purple, tilting purple a little bit, I think you might see calls for, you know, sensible gun legislation or places like uh, Texas now is leaning purple, Texas of all places. You can see um, possible calls for, well, let's move towards more sensible gun ownership. So I think the money is going to make an impact, but the symbolism of the NRA is still going to, I think, protect the A-plus rated Congress people that live in solid red states. Well, and I ask because uh, here in Oklahoma, Stephanie Bice, she wants you yes. to be safe. Terry McNeese doesn't want you to be safe. And and all it is is uh, Stephanie Bice at a shooting range like, um, I approve this message. I'm for Trump and I approve this message. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, 
Okay. And then, you know, the, the, these ads are so, they're so funny to me because they're kind of irrelevant. They're not saying anything. She's for Trump. She's not for Trump. It's like, is that what we're, was that what it all really boils down to the NRA and who's, who's closer to Trump? More and more in the solid red states, I think that's still going to be a narrative, but I do, we have already seen in the purple states and the swing districts, a move away from Trump as kind of the, the, like the default you latch onto. Obviously Emhoff's doing it. Um, But if you look at, and and this is something I wanted to touch on in the few minutes we have left. If you look at what's going to happen here in 2020, and when you have such an electric election that's happening now, and, and I don't think Biden has anything to do with it. It's a Trump referendum. You have a very difficult map for this, for the Republicans in the Senate. If Joe Biden wins the, the presidential election, the Democrats need to flip three Senate seats in order to take the majority. That is a very real possibility. Um, it looks like the Arizona seat is going to flip from red to uh, red to blue. North Carolina has a really good chance. Um, Texas, maybe Montana has a really great chance. Kansas, of all places, has a really good chance. Um, and really, the only seat that the Republicans might be able to pick up is Doug Jones' seat in Alabama. And even that one's kind of a toss-up. So the Republicans are kind of scratching their heads right now, figuring out, how are we going to do a reboot? And you can almost see see it in McConnell. He's he's bracing for this to happen. Um, and they're going to have to figure out who, who is our party. Maybe we can't be the NRA party anymore. They definitely can't be the Trump party anymore. They, they, they're going to be doing some soul searching. Um, also, for the last two minutes, just to talk about what's going on at the national scene, because we still have a pandemic. And, and hey, this is our first I think the first since the pandemic started that we haven't talked about the pandemic till the last two minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, but I know. Amazing, right? So um, there is a second stimulus that, that's being discussed right now. Um, the Democrats, House Democrats, want a $3 trillion stimulus package. Uh, the Republicans in the Senate also want one, but they want more, about $1 trillion. The stuff that's on the table uh, includes... Um, individual payments that are going to go out again and stimulus relief, um, unemployment benefits, which we don't have enough time to get into that. But, you know, there's a fight going on. And then one that's near and dear to my heart, which is the student loan, for, not forgiveness. Well, Democrats want forgiveness. Republicans are, you know, maybe a little bit more on the side of let's go ahead and stop payments for a few months. Trump, interestingly enough, said if the Republicans and the Democrats, the House and the Senate, cannot agree on something, he has already said by executive order he's going to issue stimulus payments to go out to people. He's going to order um, uh, stop payments on student loans, and he's going to do something about unemployment benefits. In other words, he sees the election coming up, and he, he sees the polls. Trump understands what's happening. He's going to, one way or the other, a second stimulus package is either going to be passed or Trump is effectively going to pass it by uh, executive order. I don't think it's going to have the effect that he's hoping for, but you never know. Some people may see that and be like, wow, the president really took charge and helped me out a little bit. Um, I think I think Americans are going to need a second round of relief, and I think the unemployment is going to be really important. So if it has to come from the executive, so be it. But uh, as of right now, we're still kind of in a stalemate because the two plans are so far apart. They were supposed to have some kind of agreement today, and it appears that it's not going to happen. 
Okay, so with the last couple of minutes, I got to know, and I know that I've asked before, but every week it seems to be getting more eerie. Do you think that the victory against Trump is going to be decisive enough for him to give up the White House? Because he's already trying to throw off the election. He's already slowing down the United States Postal Service. Yeah, that was a big thing. Uh, you know, mail-in voting has been a major contention of his. He's been saying for a long time that that is the, you know, it's the weakest point in our democracy and, and there could be illegals voting. And he did this ridiculously nuts interview with Axiom. We don't have enough time to talk about it, but go look it up. Um, and, you know, it, and this has been a message that they've been throwing out there, trying to delegitimize what might happen in the election, talking about maybe we need to push it back, maybe we need to get rid of mail-in vote, voting. Um, as of right now, the states that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that are purple are still purple. Texas is in play. Georgia is in play. Arizona looks to be a Biden state right now. Wisconsin and all Biden has to do is take Wisconsin, Pennsylvania uh, and Michigan, hold the rest and he's fine. He's ahead in Ohio. He's ahead in Arizona. He's ahead in North Carolina and he's ahead in Florida. That in and of itself would be a sweep. If he got Georgia and Texas, he would have 400 electoral votes. At that point, there's really not much Trump could do in terms of creating or churning the kind of, you know, chaos or questions or doubts. You know, his his d devoted base will still love him and will be really upset. And I have no doubt that they're going to say it was all fraudulent. But at that point, he really doesn't have a case. And by the way, all this all that has to happen is the Supreme Court just seals it and says Joe Biden's the winner and Joe Biden's the winner. And that's all that needs to happen. But leading up, he, I think Trump is going to ramp up the rhetoric that there's going to be a stolen election. I think so, too. And that's why I say every week it just gets you hear that louder and louder and louder. And, it, and the closer we get to November, we're going to keep hearing those reverberations. I, you know, it could be if the writing is on the wall a, a few weeks away from the election. Trump actually did this in 2016. He, he did say passively, well, you know, there's a chance we may not win, but we're going to keep fighting. I, I think we may see some early signs of concession. If it's a 400 or even a 350 electoral vote win for Joe Biden, I think Trump will grumpily walk away after, you know, kicking and screaming for a few days. God, let's hope. Let's hope. Because I'm counting down the days, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget, if you've missed this conversation of earning of our past episodes, all you got to do is catch up with those wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kelly J. Lewis with Dr. Chris Garneau. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you back next week. Have a great day.